and by the message of an angel, may, by his passion and cross, be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth on the Guadalupe Radio Network in North Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone. Live from the KATH 910 AM studios in Las Colinas and broadcasting across North Texas on the Guadalupe Radio Network. This is the Good News Show. And good afternoon. It is the Good News Show. And today is October 25th, 2021. And uh, we're glad that you are with us. I think we are in the 30th week of Ordinary Time. Uh, I always love this time of year. We're getting close to Advent. We're only about a month away from Advent. And uh, so much going on. we got a very, very busy show. It's a real busy weekend. In fact, uh, some of the stuff we are not even don't even have the time to talk about. Cecil was in this really cool film competition. I'm only teasing you because we don't have time to talk about it. But uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, pray for her as uh, she... T- we'll turn, maybe next week we'll be able to have more time to talk about that. But uh, I'm Dave Palmer, Cecil Anderson running the board, uh, Diane Xavier here in studio with us as well, our production manager and a mystery guest who I'm going to introduce you to in just a moment. Uh, and uh, second half of the program is going to be the UD segment with Dr. Jonathan Sanford, who is the president of UD. He came in recently and recorded uh, a segment because a gentleman by the name of Carter Sneed was coming in. Carter's kind of a big shot. He's an attorney. He's up at Notre Dame, uh, really kind of in the know about things. He had given a presentation, I think, to, I want to say, like maybe the... Uh, St. Thomas More Society. And uh, one interesting thing is I had a, a conversation with uh, Carter Sneed and we talked about Roe v. Wade and he is kind of in the know and he was like, oh yeah, man, absolutely. It's going to be 6-3 decision. They're going to overturn it. And I was like, really? A 6-3 decision? They're going to overturn it? So that, that was very optimistic. But that's going to be interesting when that all happens, when the Supreme Court takes that up. So we'll have that here in a little while. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, I want to thank uh, Gloria Sandoval and Father Jason Cargo and the whole team uh, at St. Joseph and Richardson because they had a festival over the weekend. We were out there Saturday, Sunday, yesterday. Oh, I say we with air quotes because it wasn't me, but uh, Diane uh, Xavier and Rowena Ignacio and uh, pretty busy event, huh, Diane? Yes, it was packed. I mean, I've never yeah. seen so many people enter and exit that parish. They have so many masses. Yeah. I mean, it was so beautiful. I saw... The St. Joseph, what is it, a tapestry? What? Tapestry, yeah, yeah. tapestry, sorry, tapestry. And I stop right there, I'm like, wow. I mean, you know, yeah. you walk in there and you're like frustrated, but then you walk in the church and you see that image. Yeah. It like calms you down. But and they're still under COVID protocols. Oh, really? So it's different. You know, mass is different. You can't just, I mean, I was like, I need to, you know, tithe. Yeah. And there was no collection basket because of COVID. Yeah, and yeah. So the fest- festival yeah. went well. Mm-hmm. It was Saturday and Sunday. So uh, we, we were happy to be out there. So thanks to uh, that invitation uh, for, for being out there. And, of course, uh, a big parish out there in uh, Richardson. So thank you, Diane, for going out there and also Rowena as well. Uh, I also want to mention a couple of things. Uh, first of all, last Wednesday... Um, I was, uh, we were invited to go out to the Art in the Plaza 
competition, unveiling of the winner of the competition. This is something that the Catholic Foundation has been doing for many, many years. And what they do is they invite artists to, to, to paint uh, a, a, a painting, and then it's a competition, and it, it ends. They they choose the winner, and that winner they blow up their painting on a twenty eight by nine foot public art uh, kind of mural, like a, a wall there in the uh, right next to the Meyerson Symphony Center and the art art plaza art district. I mean, it's it's really cool. And so go out there, and they announced the winner, and that was last Wednesday. And I have uh, an interview with the winner. Her name is. Uh, Heijung Gina Lee, and uh, really a neat lady. Her um, her painting is called Be Happy. It's going to be uh, on display for the next year there in the Arts District downtown, uh, right by the, the Meyerson, just right behind the Guadalupe Cathedral. And you'll love the interview with her. could talk about the inspiration, what the, the painting is, and also she just uh, gives so much glory to God. She's just a, a wonderful lady. So we're going to play that in just a minute. And so thanks to Bill Kula and Matt Kramer and all the folks over there at the Catholic Foundation. And congratulations. They had a lot of people enter uh, the competition, and it was good to be out there and uh, have a chance to, to visit with uh, some of the judges. And also, uh, I guess a Gina Lee is what she goes by. Gina Lee is the winner uh, with her painting called Be Happy. We're going to play that interview here in just a minute. Uh, I want to, before that, though, tell you that we have some tickets to a movie. Uh, have you heard about this movie called Purgatory? Uh, it's about the secret revelations of Father, uh, oh, Padre Pio and also Fola Horak. And it opens tonight. And this is going to be kind of confusing because Cicel and I are figuring out how are we going to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> I've got basically 15 tickets yes. to, to give away, right? Yes. Okay, now let me see if I can make this as, as unconfusing as possible. Mm-hmm. There's contingencies um, here. <laughs> yeah, contingencies. Five people can win a pair of tickets each. Mm-hmm. And. You can go to one of three Cinemark theaters. You can either go tonight, 7 o'clock, or you can go this Thursday, October 28th, right? Uh, you can go to the Cinemark at Webb Chapel Road, in their, you know, Farmer's Branch and, and 635 at Webb Chapel. You can go to the one in Plano, uh, on Plano Parkway, or there's one in Rockwall. Okay, so... <laughs> you don't need to tell us which one you need to yeah. go to between those three. Yeah, Just right. <laughs> Yeah, good clarification. You want tickets. <laughs> yeah, if you want tickets, and you can go tonight or Thursday, one of those theaters. But you can only go to one of those theaters. Yeah. I also have <laughs> five tickets for Thursday night, and they're showing at North Park AMC. Okay, so let's just make it simple. And two pairs for the North Park Thursday night, and five pairs for either Rockwall, Plano, or Dallas. Perfect. Okay. And so I purposely, I want to play this interview with uh, Gina Lee, the winner, and that's going to take about five minutes. And hopefully in those five minutes, we'll get all of our calls and because then Cecil can uh, be busy talking to you. So here's the phone number if you want to go see this movie called Purgatory. Let me tell you a little bit about it first. It tells the story of souls living both in bodies and those that have already left this world, mystics such as Fola Horak, St. Faustina, and St. Padre Pio, who have been graced by visits of souls from purgatory, are only some of the protagonists featured in the movie. The film also highlights the work of the most outstanding theologians and scientists who have been studying the state of human consciousness upon the death of the body. Okay, it's called Purgatory, and it is uh, coming out tonight. All right, so if you want to go see it, uh, I don't think I need to explain that again. Either tonight or Thursday in Dallas, Rockwall or Plano, or if you want to go Thursday night in Dallas at at, uh, North Park Mall, 
We got two tickets. Okay, so says what you figure it out as people Sound, start calling. Well, we okay, we got this. We All got right, it. you got this. All right, the phone number to call eight seven 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 five seven nine four two four. Just get two tickets uh, at the end of the program. Uh, if we still have some left. I'll um, put out another call and tell you what we have left. But uh, just tell Sissel if you want uh, uh, two tickets to the Cinemark or AMC. AMC is only North Park. Cinema, Cinemark Theaters is uh, Rockwall, Dallas, or Plano. 877-757-9424. 877-757-9424. Okay, so that's that. And uh, here's the interview that I did with Gina Lee, the winner of the Art in the Plaza competition sponsored by the Catholic Foundation uh, from last Wednesday. All right, I'm here with uh, Heijung Gina Lee. She's the winner of the Art on the Plaza competition here with uh, the Catholic Foundation. And first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Are you from this area? Uh, do you go to a parish around here or, or a little bit about your background? Yes. Um, no, I'm a retired CPA, but I always wanted to be an artist since I was very young. And we moved to Dallas in about six years ago. And in 2018, I knew about this uh, competition, but then I, since then I had forgotten about it. And uh, this year I made a mind and I said I wanted to be a full-time artist. Yeah. So I started studying at the uh, North Lake College full-time. And my one of my professors gave the uh, competition deadline schedule. And this was one of them and I recognized it. So I said, I've got to enter now and I did. And so I can't believe that this is my first uh, entry to a public calling for art and I won the greatest one in Dallas. And I am so grateful and um, the blessing and honor I received from God is just wonderful. Yes. Incredible. Tell me, uh, of course, we're on, we're doing radio, so people can't see it uh, perhaps while they're listening right now, but uh, tell us about your art piece and the inspiration behind it. It's called uh, Be Happy, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, Be Happy. Well, you know, uh, when I heard about this uh, uh, competition in 2018, uh, the title of the winning work was Tree of Life. It was beautiful, but I was more impressed with the venue that, that was on display. And I don't know if there are too many venues like this on the uh, ground of a cathedral, but that's also in the arts community that's providing artistic and spiritual uh, landmark in the city. So I said, this is where I need to be. And when I think about it, from my point of view, with all the pandemic and, and all these things going on, I wanted to make something very cheerful and spiritually connected to all ages. So think about the color schemes and nature. Of course, the nature has to be the subject matter here. And I want to make something very modern and um, colorful, but then, and yet kind of uh, spiritually connecting not so wild or chaotic, right? So it needs to have some kind of calm feeling to it when somebody just looks at it. So I put these colorful trees, which is not conventional color of the forest, but I think it works in modern art. And the skies with this happy pinkish uh, clouds. And the road that runs straight toward far away where we walk our daily life we don't know where it's going but we are surrounded by god created beautiful nature and if you have the faith you will never fail you will never uh, lose the happiness or or hope for your future so that's what i had in the in designing this work and of course some water in the foreground which you would always meant you know 
the life yeah, for us. Life. Yes, yeah. that's well, how very, I very well know. thought out, yes. very beautiful. And uh, what does it mean to you, especially being like you say, your first competition? You win it, and not only did you win it, but it's going to be on public display in a busy, busy downtown area for yeah. the next year, and so many people are going to see this. What does yeah. that mean to you to uh, have it displayed so prominently in downtown Dallas? Yes, yeah. well, that's kind of a little scary, and it humbles me first. But uh, the pictures have power. Uh, and it can give very strong emotions, strong, powerful messages, many different messages. So I look at it as a same kind of uh, way of giving messages to people who will be walking by or coming here to look at it. So um, for me, first of all, it is the uh, spiritual place. So all artwork, if you look at it, all famous artwork have some kind of spirit attached to it, yeah. whether the artist's personal life or their lifestyle, whatever it is. So it is fitting that we attach our face to the, to the artwork. Mm -hmm. And um, so I look at it as a blessing for me from God and a direction for me to be what kind of artist I should be and what kind of artwork I should make. And... It is a clear message, and I appreciate it. I thank and praise the praise the Lord. Yeah, congratulations. Last question: uh, How did you find out that you won, and what was your first reaction? So I was in a class when Matt left a voice message on my phone, and I came home and I saw a message, and I listened to it, and I'm like, he didn't say that I was the winner. <laughs> he just said, oh, yeah, I'm mad from the Catholic Foundation. Please give me a call. That was it. So I called him from my car, and he said I was the winner. I'm like, what? I can't believe this, because I never won anything uh. this big in my whole life, and I just started studying art full time. So it was just amazing, and my husband was there, and we just jump up and down and laugh non-stop <laughs> we, we left several days in fact <laughs> well congratulations thank you god bless you all right, there you go. Wow, what was that sound there at the end? Sound I don't know. I was trying to eliminate like some of the noise, so it might have been a weird echo of that elimination of the noise. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, this is the Good News Show. Congratulations again to uh, uh, Gina Lee, the winner of the Art in the Plaza competition sponsored by the Catholic Foundation. And it's a, you know, as she mentioned in the interview, it's bright. You know, she said, man, people have been going through so much uh, hardship these uh, last couple of years, and she just wanted something, uh, you know, bright and joyful, and it, it really is. So get on out there and check it out. Out sometime. It's right behind Guadalupe Cathedral there in the Arts District of downtown Dallas. Hey, we still have some of the Purgatory tickets. Uh, if you'd like to see the movie Purgatory uh, this week, either tonight or Thursday in Rockwall or Dallas or Plano, uh, call us up. We still have uh, some tickets remaining. And if you can, if you want to go to the North Park Mall, um, we have uh, two tickets, uh, two pairs uh, still. 877-757-9424. 877-757-9424. Jeff, something? Yes, and just like if... Uh, if I put you on hold for a second, I'm going to get to your call, so just stay on the line. I had a couple of calls dropped, so I'll have to put them on hold, but I will get to you, I promise. Yeah, right. So, yeah, you got to be very patient, right? Diane, real quick, who was? If nobody claims... Oh. oh, go ahead. If nobody claims them, can I have one? <laughs> <laughs> I can give you one for North Park, yes. Uh, it's, you. it's yours. All right. Diane just called in. Uh, says, All right, now the calls are coming in. All right, so call us up if you want to see Purgatory tonight or Thursday, Dallas, Rockwall, or Plano, or uh, Thursday night in... Uh, North Park Mall in... 
Dallas. Okay, so, all right, there we go. Purgatory uh, sounds like a pretty cool movie. Uh, somebody said, is it Catholic? And I was like, well, we're the only ones that believe in purgatory, right? So it's got to be Catholic, right? Or, or Orthodox, I think. Uh, all right, let's get on to our mystery guest that I mentioned uh, a moment ago. And uh, happy to have in studio with me Aaron Fowler. He is the executive director of Birth Choice in Dallas, located over there at Greenville and Royal, and they are just doing fabulous things to help women and families, and of course, saving babies, uh, uh, you know, all the time. They're located right where Planned Parenthood, uh, unfortunately, has. Is it Planned Parenthood that has the, the center right there, Aaron? It's not a Planned Parenthood. It's okay. a Southwestern. Um, oh, Southwestern, yeah. That's that's the big late-term one. Yeah, gosh, horrible. Well, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good to see you. Thanks so much for having me on. Is, it, is Mike on? Uh, I think. Uh, let me see. Is that Go ahead and say something. Is that better? Okay, it doesn't sound like... Uh, can you make sure that uh, his mic is on? <laughs> Thistle's on the phone there, so we want to make sure your voice actually gets across. Yeah, I think Thistle has to uh, control it uh, in there. And, um, all right. So anyways, the, the, the website for birth choice is birthchoicedallas.org. And, uh, just by way of, you know, the person out there saying, I never heard of birth choice. Uh, what do they do? How long you been the executive director, a little bit about the mission, the purpose and uh, what you guys do out there. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah. I think you just need to bring his mic up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. Uh, so we have, um, uh, a pro-life mission. Yeah. Uh, Birth Choice Dallas is a Catholic organization, uh, um, non-parish based, so recognized by the diocese. Um, we have a lot of support at different parishes around the city, but we are strategically located in the same parking lot as one of the largest abortion facilities in Texas and uh, Southwestern uh, Fairmont Surgical Center um, has you know, been there for as long as we've been there. So as soon yeah. as they moved in, we moved in behind them. We're a pregnancy resource center. So women that are struggling or having an unplanned pregnancy and either in crisis or just really um, unsure about the future ahead, we receive them in, provide counseling services, material assistance. Um, we have a fantastic staff of medical professionals and individuals prepared to receive these women uh, and discuss all of the things you know that are concerning them, and provide them resources and support them in making a life decision. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you look, uh, you see now hiring signs. I mean, like restaurants and uh, I mean everybody, retail. Everybody's looking for people, and you're no different. You've got some positions there, and I, I would think birth choice would be a great place to work because every single day uh, you're doing something literally saving lives. And so what, what positions do you have available? And um, tell us about the, uh, what you, who you're looking for. Awesome. Well, thanks, Steve. Um, we have, uh, you're, you're definitely right. We have two positions open at the moment um, for client advocates. And so this role is really well suited to someone who is very in, um, intent on helping and listening to, to women, particularly in, in very challenging situations um, anywhere from rape, domestic abuse, violence, um, homelessness, you know, all, all of the things that uh, really plague our daily life and make, make it, you know, incredibly challenging uh, to, to come out, you know, with great success. So these, these um, client advocates uh, encounter the women and spend the majority of their time counseling and educating them on the variety of different circumstances that, mm -hmm. that they uh, feel overwhelmed by. And so we use a very particular model of, of you know, clinical encounter, which is called motivational interviewing. 
And, and that has provided uh, a great resource to these advocates so they're well equipped to encounter and communicate with these women uh, about their very challenging circumstances. Um, the uh, client advocate does follow-up calls and is just really affable. Someone who has been a licensed counselor, so an LPC, or someone who is a social worker really fits in well with that particular role. Um, and so that would be kind of a, a strong point for someone you know seeking that type of position. Uh, we do get a wide range of individuals, and not always are they you know fully pro-life or, or you know fundamentally Catholic mm-hmm. in, in their ideals, um, whether they are non-denominational Christian or whatnot. Um, and so we, we get a variety of different people applying for the position. But I'm kind of reaching out here through the radio, trying to encourage the Catholic community and, and kind of stir and see if the spirit is you know, there and, and going to make themselves available to continue this pro-life work. Yeah. You mentioned uh, licensed professional counselors or social workers. Uh, is that a requirement or just those the kind of people that would fit well for this these positions? It's not an absolute requirement, but it is something that individuals with that type of talent, whether it's the education or, you know, as the professional direction, yeah, that, that fits in really okay. well. Okay. Male or female? Right now, female, uh, because we have the, the female advocates that see the female clients okay. in the majority. So right now we're not prepared for, for male client advocates. Yeah. It takes a special person. I mean, you have to be uh, empathetic. You have to, you know, obviously really love people. And I'm sure there's also, uh, it, it can get emotional at times. You got to try to be empathetic, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're, these are some pretty, uh, serious concerns that people are bringing up, and everybody that comes in is in some kind of a crisis situation, right? So, hundred percent. So, the individual that you know, for their own personal discernment, needs to have a great deal of personal maturity. Mm-hmm. You know, whether yeah. they're fifteen years old or you know, a hundred years old, the personal maturity and the way they encounter individuals is is probably the, the biggest piece. Because as you listen to those very challenging stories. Burnout can occur. It's just generally overwhelming. Um, and we believe at Birth Choice that the client advocates and the staff having a really high morale from day to day yeah. allows them to encounter the clients at their very best. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we highly encourage someone who understands their personal boundaries and is personally mature to be able to hear those and not take it home you know, or just take each one uh, so heavily that it impacts the rest of their their day. Yeah, Aaron Fowler is here. He's executive director of Birth Choice of Dallas. Uh, they're located at eighty six ten Greenville Avenue, Suite two hundred. And I know you give tours. Uh, and if somebody wants to go out there and just kind of check it out, there at the corner of uh, Greenville and Royal, you can certainly do that. Their website birthchoicedallas.org. Birthchoicedallas.org. Tell us what impact, if any, the new Texas law has had on you know your work and also this. I mentioned this this feeling that well, not more of a feeling. The Supreme Court is taking up the Mississippi law, and they're weighing in on the Texas law. And I think a lot of people that are following the news are saying, "Wow, is is Roe v. Wade going to be overturned? Does that have uh, an immediate impact on the psyche of of abortion minded women, or just uh, what, how, what impact has that had on birth choice?" Um, that's a great question, Dave. It has definitely had an impact. Um, and it's not so much, I think, on, on the psyche, but it has a great impact on the perception. So if the women in majority here in Texas, particularly with the, the law that's been passed, SB8, 
um, it seems to have adjusted their their perception on what they have availability because there's mm-hmm. a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, what what are their needs? And organizations like us that might be able to help if they've passed that um, that legislative timeline. You know, abortion is always evil, and and you know, in, inspired by you know the 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 diabolical. But the reality is, is we also have to inform women on on what is true and walk them through that process. Mm-hmm. So it has across all of Texas. I'm on several groups of of pro-life uh, pregnancy centers and they're all experiencing the same thing the clients are you know misinformed or, or malinformed or they're additionally scared or they're they stop looking so mm-hmm. we get a lot of clients um, around Texas right now that ordinarily would you know come in for assistance but they feel that they've either passed their their timeline of being um, uh, available for their abortion services um, and they've given up looking, mm-hmm. so they stopped asking for help. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is a decline in a lot of the client, um, the clientele that was ordinarily very abortion determined, um, but we have seen a lot more early clients. Yeah. Uh, the clients that are just really needing an answer today, kind of thing. Uh, and so, with with that impact, we did notice a very real transition one in their mentality and two a, a way to care for them that we're all adapting to, but. But Roe versus Wade being overturned is a, a much, much bigger situation. Uh, the possibility of that is high. Yeah. Like that, that might actually happen. Um, but the one thing that is uh, not so common anymore, but, but it, it does have certain um, individuals that might think as soon as Roe versus Wade is overturned, the pro-life work is done. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, and that's not the case. Right, that's the farthest thing from the truth. In fact, if Roe v. Roe v. Wade is overturned, then it goes to the states. I think Texas is a state that probably would make it illegal. We, we have we, a trigger we, bill we'll, already. So, yeah, so, so it's the the the, effect, the, yeah. the moment it becomes illegal. Mm-hmm. But like you said, your work is not done because there's still unwanted pregnancies. There's still people that are going to desire it they still need to be counseled and advocated right so uh but i have has, has that is that a conversation you guys are having like what happens the it day is. after roe v wade no, is, is shot down we we i think um uh, across the state yeah the, the pregnancy centers were caught off guard a little bit because we've seen it so many times oh it comes up and then they throw an injunction and nothing happens yeah. it comes up and that's 40 years. And so there's just a lot of jadedness, I think, that it happened. And then this SB8 actually went through. There was quite a few people that were very um, prepared and some that weren't so prepared. And so they've been making the adaptations the best way they can. Uh, but the reality is, is that even if the trigger bill goes into effect, even if abortion is illegal in, in full in Texas next June or, or whatever, when they supposedly would release that, um, the battle is not how to stop abortions. That's the most eminent thing that we need to work on. But the reality is it's, it's the culture of life against the culture of death. Yeah. And so yeah. the culture of death is still very, very present in not only our local communities, but in the country as a whole, the encounter and the thing that we provide has always been the culture of life and its most authentic form. Um, but the low-hanging fruit is addressing that in the context of abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, women are still very at odds. Um, there are still going to be unplanned pregnancies. There's going to be even more need and, and more confusion that occurs at that time. Um, 
that women will need continued support and help uh, in that way. Yeah. Let me ask you about one thing. I know we'll just give kind of general information about this, but I did get an email from my friend Shelly Stanzel, and she said she's chairing the Birth Choice Christmas Brunch in Dallas Symphony Orchestra Family Sing-Along Christmas Concert. Wow, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> At the Meyerson on December 5th. Its official name is the Ultimate Family Christmas Kickoff. And uh, started four years ago. Uh, they've had some concerts. Okay, so I, I know, you know, she's the chair. But uh, any, anything else about that? Or tickets for sale already? Or um, anything else you want to say about that event? Yeah, you can find that information at our website, support.birthchoicedallas.org. Uh, and that will, you can go through and look under, you know, events or what we're doing or, or something. I don't remember the exact tab. Uh, and then get a little bit of information. If you want to go or you want to learn some more, just call the office um, and and you know ask for me, and I'll kind of walk anybody through any particular questions they have. Mm-hmm. All right, and uh, also want to remind everybody you've got two positions uh, available: uh, client advocates, and uh, you know I, I, I want you to be able to repeat that information, but. Um, Motivational interviewing. I'm, I'm curious about that. Uh, can you kind of you, you mentioned that this is the strategy because I'm always curious about. I mean, this is life and death situation. Somebody comes in, they're abortion minded, they're distraught, and maybe their boyfriend's leaving them, or you know, who knows what else is going on in their life. Uh, just have a, a couple minutes, not a lot of time. What, what's the strategy? Tell us what motivational interviewing is. So, and that's a great question. Um, the the ideal of encountering women in that time of crisis, just very overwhelming, a lot happening, um, th- that is very a clinical situation yeah. where someone is processing through. They're very ambivalent about what they want to do. They feel strongly this way and that way at the same time. It's, it's complicated. And so it's appropriate and dignifying to them to encounter them with the highest level of professionalism that you can. And so uh, after consulting several different uh, clinicians, whether they're licensed counselors or psychiatrists or whatnot, and dialoguing very um, pro-life-minded individuals, uh, we've come up with a plan. But the the one at the forefront of that is Dr. Andrew Gill, who has been on your show uh, several different times, Mm -hmm. close friend of mine. uh, And he did several in-person tailored trainings of this MI, which allows us instead of soliciting or encouraging or advising or at the worst coercing a woman to not pursue her abortion, we, we really believe in her. We really believe that, that she is um, a, a child of God. So she deserves respect to be dignified. We believe that she's creative and, and competent and capable of identifying her own challenges and overcoming them. And so this model operates in a very reflective way. So it makes suggestion back to her on her own thoughts mm-hmm. instead of, hey, how about, you know, don't think about that baby. That, that's so important. How about yeah. not kill that baby? Have you ever thought, have you tried to name the baby? And, the, and so, so you block the individual. And this is, again, um, a very clinical circumstance. And so allowing that woman and addressing her situation in the most careful and appropriate way possible because she deserves that. Yeah, She yeah. deserves to be received 
with professionalism, with someone who not only knows what they're doing, but has been trained thoroughly to be able to receive that type of dialogue. Oh, yeah. yes, I've been raped and I want to end my baby's life. Not normal. Normal people just don't enter into that mm -hmm. conversation and yeah. do very well often, at least not on the heights that we would expect from an organization that does it professionally. Yeah. And yeah. so 100 percent motivation interviewing. And I would actually love to get Andrew on here with me at some time and, and, and walk through that, because it's a really important part uh, of specifically of what birth choice does. Um, and we believe that it has definitely had its impact in the shift to that. We've been doing that for about a year now. I bet it also could be transferable to other sort of situations like parenting or dealing definitely. with, uh, you know, teenagers or <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, all right. Well, um, Aaron Fowler here, um, and we are just have about another minute. But uh, just one more time, the details about the client advocates, who you're looking for, Hopefully, as you walk out today, you're going to get a couple phone calls saying, hey, I heard you on the radio. I'm interested in that position. So uh, just kind of a recap. Uh, who, who, what, are you, what are you looking for in those positions? Absolutely. So someone who's personally mature, the role is, is full-time. Um, we uh, expect you know, the, the pro-life mission and the pro-life heart of the individual uh, to be in alignment with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, the individual needs to be able to manage a lot on their own time. So, so they're given the tasks of encountering the clients, doing the follow-ups, and, and they do a lot of self-management uh, in that way. So an individual very open and interested to helping women in particular that are experiencing possibly the worst day of their life and, and having that you know, client after client every day. All right, and if people are interested, should they go to the website, call you directly, email? What should they do? Call, call Birth Choice. Um, uh, you can always send an email to director at birthchoicedallas.org. Uh, that goes directly to me. And so, uh, you know, our phone number or our uh, direct email would be a great way to contact me. All right, 214-631-2402. Is that the right number? Yeah, there you go. And uh, I just remembered we also have it on our um, support dot birthchoicedallas.org there is actually a job posting on there all right uh 214-631-2402 client advocate positions and you can find out all the information on the website birthchoicedallas.org or the other website was one more time support dot birthchoicedallas.org all right uh, very good Aaron, thanks for coming in good to see you as always and uh we'll, we'll continue to pray for your work and all the good folks that uh are working there with you uh, there at Birth Choice of Dallas. Quick update, uh, Thistle, on the tickets. Let me just uh, give a recap is that we have some tickets to a movie called Purgatory that has that is coming out tonight. And uh, originally we had five sets of tickets for the Cinemark Theaters. You can go to either Plano or Dallas. They're at Web Chapel and 635 or Rockwall. And how many of those tickets remain? We have one pair of those tickets. Oh, left. well, just one pair left. Yes, oh, one okay. pair of those tickets All left. Right. At, so yeah. call right yeah. now, 877-757-9424 if you want uh, that one last pair of tickets. <laughs> you get to choose mm -hmm. Rockwall, uh, you know, basically Farmer's Branch, 
or uh, Plano. And by the way, Plano has been very popular. I think everyone wants to go to Plano. Oh, really? So uh, okay. you might find some, make some and friends there. Tonight at 7 or Thursday at 7. And then how many tickets for North Park? Uh, did, did Diane claim one? Did I hear Diane that? Diane got one, yes. yes. Okay, so we have two pairs for oh, North Park. Oh, it's still got two pairs. Yes, okay. Two All pairs. right, so North Park Mall uh, this this Thursday. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you want those tickets to, to Purgatory, I mean, you know, hey, that that's better than the alternative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd I mean, rather have a ticket to <laughs> Yeah, you're not going to Purgatory. Purgatory. You're going to a movie called Purgatory. Okay, I need to, I need to make that more clear. Okay, yes, I'm sorry. Baby. Someone just tuned I'm in not, right now. I'm not now. sending you to Purgatory. <laughs> I don't have that power to do that, okay? Uh, Diane is, uh, so Diane's going. Boy, you can go and be with Diane Thursday night. You can you sit go. next to her. Uh, 3D glasses, I hope. Yeah, okay. I don't think it's 3D. That'd, no. Uh, all right. So, okay. So, let me just recap. One pair of tickets to either Rockwall, Plano, or Farmer's Branch, mm-hmm. the Cinemark Theater. Okay. Those are up for grabs right now. One pair. Or two pairs of tickets at North Park Mall for this Thursday. The, the Cinemark is tonight or Thursday. Uh, North Park Mall is only Thursday. All right. I think I got this. I got it in my mind. Okay. Phone number 877-757-9424. 877-757-9424. It's a new movie called Purgatory that's coming out. So, all right, here come the calls. And uh, we'll work all that out. And um, let's see. Well, okay, now we're going to play the the UD segment, uh, Father, uh, Father, Dr. Sanford and uh, Carter Sneed. So here's uh, the UD segment here on The Good News Show. Well, thank you, Dave. It's wonderful to be back on The Good News at UD Show. And we have a very special guest today, Professor Carter Sneed of the law school at the University of Notre Dame. He is also the director of the De Nicola, De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture and a concurrent professor of political science. And I first got to know Carter, I think, through um, the Center for Ethics and Culture, although I was at another university. I can't remember the timing when we had you out at Franciscan. It was 2008, I think. 2008. And, uh, but you've been with the center – since 2012, okay, as the director. So it was prior to that. Um, that center does remarkable things in helping to build up Catholic culture on the campus of the University of Notre Dame and also um, more broadly across the United States. So thank you for your work there and at the law school. It really is a tremendous service. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for all you do at the University of Dallas, which, and I say this as a professor at the University of Notre Dame, an indispensable Catholic university in the world, and it shapes students and produces scholarship and and provides services uh, around the world in ways that are absolutely essential to the flourishing of Catholic culture, and And I couldn't be more honored than being here with you uh, at the University of Dallas. Well, well, thank you. Well, it's fortunate you're, you're in the law school, so we'll do the undergrad, and then we'll send them your way. <laughs> Perfect. We love <laughs> UD students. I've had amazing UD students over the 16 years I've been at Notre Dame Law School. Awesome. Well, um, I want to talk a little bit about this book. It's it's had a lot of discussion over the last couple of years, um, or year and a half, I should say, right? What it means to be human. And um, could you talk to us a little bit about the thesis of this book and, and why that thesis is so significant 
at this cultural moment. Yeah, absolutely. So the title, the full title of the book is What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. And in the book, I make two claims, a sort of methodological claim about how best to understand public bioethics, which is the law and public policy that connects to advances in biomedical science, biotechnology, and in the practice of medicine. It's really the governance. Public bioethics is the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. Mm-hmm. And the argument that I, the methodological argument of the book is that to, the richest way to understand public bioethics as an area of law and policy is to drill down and ask the question of what vision of the human person and human flourishing is anchoring and animating the laws and policies that we're under discussion. Mm-hmm. And that might seem counterintuitive to someone. Like what, what is, you know, you, you might term that question sort of an anthropological question, what it means to be and flourish as a human being. Why does that, ha- what does that have anything to do with law and policy or politics? And the answer is that all laws aim at, uh, aim at the uh, promotion of, of, the, uh, of the flourishing of human beings and the protection of human beings. Law would be arbitrary and capricious at best if it didn't have that ultimate goal in mind. And because law is designed for and, and implemented for the protection of persons and for their, the promotion of their flourishing, uh, it has to operate according to a prior understanding of what a person is or mm-hmm. who a person is. And so at the deepest, at the very deepest level, if we want to understand the law and to offer a critique or a defense of it, you have to really ask the question of what this law assumes you and I are mm-hmm. and what we need and what, and what we need to be protected from and what we need to be incentivized to pursue or, or disincentivized from. Uh, and so that's the kind of um, methodological argument that the anthropological question is the fundamental question for understanding law and public policy. And that is especially true mm-hmm. of public bioethics, which deals with questions of human identity and human frailty and vulnerability, as well as even the boundaries of the moral legal community. Who counts as a human being? Who counts as one of us? Mm-hmm. Whose good is part of the common good? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you train that uh, form of analysis on what I call the vital conflicts of American public bioethics, abortion, the law of abortion, the law relating to assisted reproduction, and the law connected to end-of-life decision-making, what comes to the surface is a vision of the person in American law that is impoverished and incomplete in a way as to be actually dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a vision of the person that could be described using the terminology of philosophers Charles Taylor or social scientist Robert Bella as expressive individualism. Mm -hmm. And that sounds highfalutin, but when you describe it, it becomes immediately recognizable to anyone who is a, lives in contemporary American or even, you know, a contemporary, you know, occupant of the planet. It's the idea that, uh, what, what defines a person is his or her will. Uh, that the person is coextensive solely with his or her will or her mind. Uh, the body is a mere instrument to help pursue the projects of the will. And human flourishing consists in sort of interrogating the depths of the interior of the self, finding your own true, authentic truths, mm-hmm. uh, your own, uh, your own originality, uh, expressing that and then configuring your life accordingly to pursue those those uh, those unique and authentic truths that you can only find, really only you can find inside yourself. It's a vision of the person that's entirely abstracted from our relationships, our relationships to family, our relationships to tradition or church or state. Uh, and it's uh, and as an abstraction, it's false. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a kind of vision of the person as an atomized individual will seeking to find his or her own authentic destiny. And everything else is instrumental, not just the body, but human relationships, even mm-hmm. familial relationships are instrumental. And so you see immediately that this is not a vision of the person that tracks with lived reality. It doesn't 
capture doesn't even make sense of the kind of mutual dependence and vulnerability and subjection to natural limits that we have. And what I argue in the book is the fundamental flaw in this, in this anthropology is it completely fails to understand the importance and meaning of the body. And, and the body is an integrated, integral part of our, of our lives that we are not, we don't simply have bodies, but we are ensouled bodies. We're the dynamic unity of body and mind. And to ignore the body is to ignore key aspects, inexorable aspects of our existence, our frailty, our vulnerability, mm-hmm. uh, and, and to, and to, to be become blind to the vulnerability of our, of our neighbors or our obligations, our unchosen obligations to friends and neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that becomes, so it's a very poor foundation for public bioethics in areas where we're actually talking about frailty and vulnerability and sickness and, and death and birth and, and, and pregnancy and babies and, and so on. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you very much. You know, the, the, um, Aristotle argues that you can only flourish as a kind of being you are. And, and here we have a, a view of the human person that is profoundly impoverished precisely because it doesn't take into account our embodiedness, our, our bodies, their limits. And, and we have a lot of misery in our culture that in many respects is, is highly successful. And yet people are, are not flourishing precisely as human beings because they take this atomized approach to the human being and seek to maximize their preferences that, that come from this, so to speak, authentic self deep down inside that only they can identify and, and pursue. So thank you for identifying the problem. I know you draw deeply from Alistair McIntyre's treatment, particularly in dependent rational animals, and, and when he reflects upon the, the virtues of acknowledged dependency, right, those virtues like misericordia or compassion and and charity more broadly speaking right those are virtues that we recognize as necessary to our flourishing precisely because we don't flourish as individuals who are independent selves from others we flourish by acknowledging the fact that we're dependent on others they're dependent upon us and in order for us to to really build up a culture that has the common good at a at a a, a much greater depth than one that just looks for our, our, our preference maximization, then, then indeed um, we can flourish. Now, I, I, I tend to approach this purely philosophically um, when, I, when I teach classes on, on Alistair McIntyre or ethics. You're looking at the law in particular. You said something early on about you know, the law needs to take into account genuine goods and the promotion of the common good. And if it doesn't, then it's, it's a specious claim to be a law, right? So what, what are, as you see it, the legal ramifications of taking seriously our embodiment and the virtues of acknowledged dependence? Yeah, I, I think I would suggest first that you take a concrete case because this sounds a little abstract, right, as we talk back and forth between the virtues of acknowledged dependence as really the necessary virtues and practices for embodied beings to flourish because what embodied beings need to flourish are what McIntyre calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving made of people who are willing to make the good of others their own good. To put it more shortly, I would say that by virtue of our embodiment and the entailments of our embodiment, we're made for love and friendship. Mm-hmm. And that's an essential reality of what it means to be a human being. And if we forget that, then we, we go wrong. And if we use that as a foundation for laws and public policies, we go wrong in a very dangerous way. But to make that more concrete and less abstract, let's talk a little bit about the law of abortion, which of course is in Texas is a big, a big issue right now with mm-hmm. the heartbeat bill and litigation. And then we've got the Dobbs case mm-hmm. coming up, uh, which will be argued on December 1st, which I think is actually going to be 
uh, I mean, it's a direct challenge to Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe v. Wade, the two Supreme mm-hmm. Court precedents that govern abortion. And I think that really creates a – I actually think those cases are going to be overturned. I think mm-hmm. – I'm, I'm quite optimistic about what's well, going to happen. We can talk about that later if you like to. Mm-hmm. But back to the thesis of the book, if you look at Roe v. Wade, if you look at Planned Parenthood versus Casey, these cases – these these opinions invented a right to abortion – uh, that was not in any way connected to the text, history, or tradition of the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that talks about abortion. The source of authority they point to is the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868 at a time when abortion was illegal everywhere in the United States mm-hmm. by, by codified law in 30 of 37 states, by common law everywhere. Um, <clears throat> and no one uh, alive in 1868 or really alive from 1868 to 1973 thought – Seriously, that the due process clause, which only guarantees that no person should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, meant that states couldn't protect unborn children from abortion. Right. They all did protect unborn children from abortion then and, and even later. But the court, instead of looking at the text, history, and tradition of the Constitution, does its own sort of philosophizing and says – and Justice Blackman meditates in Roe v. Wade on the unique burdens of – Unplanned pregnancy, not just pregnancy, but also unplanned parenthood of mm-hmm. having a child that's unwanted and is a burden, not just on the mother, but also on the family and the community, mm-hmm. and concludes that it must be the case that the Constitution, in an unenumerated way, that is an unwritten way, but nevertheless forceful way, protects a woman's right to choose to 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 exercise lethal violence or have someone else on her behalf exercise lethal violence to eliminate – this sort of stranger, this this atomized other stranger that's something less than a person, the unborn child, deemed sort of by fiat by Justice Blackman to be less than a person. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of, he, he frames the whole question as a kind of clash of strangers, mm-hmm. unborn child and and the woman who are fighting over sort of scarce resources, namely the woman's body, but not just the woman's body, but the woman's future yep. and her plans for her future and her and her and her freedom. And um, and if you and you can see in that framing the anthropology of expressive individualism, right. you can see that it describes the human context of pregnancy in a way that is completely foreign to the lived reality of it. Ask any mother: Is this a stranger? Is this an alien growing inside you? Right. That sounds like you know back to your philosophical background. That's Judith Jarvis Thompson. That's, that's right. That, that's not that's not biology. That's not lived reality. And to say, well, and if you and if you frame the question in this way, and and say, well, what, what's at stake is the woman's own self understanding and her own freedom and her own freedom to define an open future without mm-hmm. the burdens of this unwanted bodily intrusion. Then, if you frame it that way, which of course focuses on her as an atomized individual will and trying to to prioritize the will uh, uh, over the relationality of pregnancy of mother and child, ignoring entirely the relationship of mother and child, mm-hmm. it, it 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 separates mothers and children and makes them into strangers, which they are not by nature. Strangers, they're deeply connected to each other, related to each other. It's mother and child, mm-hmm. and so framing it as Justice Blackman did, you see the bias in the direction of the solution that he provides, which is a right to to to, to to use violence, mm-hmm. to exclude a usurping stranger uh, who wants what you have and is not entitled to it. That's a, that's, that's, a, that's a vision of reality that is a world of strife populated mm-hmm. by atomized wills seeking their own good, uh, in some cases having to overbear and destroy other wills yeah. or other beings or other obstacles. And then in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, they just double down on this, and we get this passage from – uh, what it was normally attributed to Anthony Kennedy, this sort of mystery of life passage where they say at the heart of liberty is the freedom to define the mystery of life and one's open future. And you can't possibly have real liberty if those 
decisions are formed under the coercive power of the state. So you can see in the language that those two cases are an anthem to expressive individualism. And they go very badly wrong because they misdescribe the human context. And if you were to describe it in a humanly accurate way and to say what we're talking about is a mother and a child in crisis and recognize that relationality, recognize that – Network of uh, graceful uh, receiving and uncalculated giving par excellence, the parental child relationship, mm-hmm. then you would open up our thinking to how do we help them? How, do, how would any decent society, any decent government come to the aid of a mother and child and help? That's, that's the solution that, it, that, that is pointed towards when you frame it in a humanly truthful way. Mm-hmm. No, that, that, that is an excellent reflection on, on the most basic problems with. Um, the view of the human person and the kind of, of implications that that leads to lethal violence in the service of expressive individualism. That's, that's where we are. And, um, you know, God willing, um, we're going to move away from that legally very soon. And we, we need to do more work to build up an understanding of what it is to be a human person. And I want to uh, shift to a reflection upon what kind of education can lead to that deeper understanding at the University of Dallas, and, and I know you're a grad of, of St. John's College in, in Annapolis, excellent, great book school. Um, we've both been blessed with with really um, the fruits of a, a excellent education, liberal education that emphasizes the great books, and offering that kind of education to future generations of, of students, whether they're Catholic or not, yields, I think, this kind of rich understanding of the human person. How, do, how does it do so? Yeah. What, what, what do you see as the, the most basic features? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and also, I, I would mention here um, the, the Trinity schools also, by mm-hmm. the way. Uh, I, you, I think you went to Trinity I went to Trinity in, in South son, Bend. My 16-year-old goes to Trinity School at Green Lawn, and mm-hmm. I, I love – it's an amazing place, and I'm, I'm always impressed by it, the emphasis that they place on the, on the sort of humanistic formation through yes. this process. But University of Dallas is, is exactly the right example to take here. I mean it's an entire university with a strong core curriculum devoted to – forming the human person in a way that is that is consistent with what a person really is mm-hmm. and i think that uh, a, a great humanistic education like the one you all provide at dallas uh, first of all creates kind of habits of mind right mm-hmm. sort of virtues of humility uh, in terms of in terms of one's relationship to these ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're confronted if if you're formed the right way and the educational framework is the right way as it is at Dallas, you come you come in as a sort of probably cocky freshman, and you're pretty quickly if you're if you're paying attention stripped down and you realize, wow, I don't know everything that 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 uh, that I thought I knew. In mm-hmm. fact, what I need to do is read these texts carefully, yeah. and I need to be humble before these ideas and before these. Thinkers, even if I don't have to valorize them or I don't have to worship them, but I, but I do have to think seriously about what they're saying and understand how to read a text and be humble before these books and these ideas. Mm-hmm. And what that ultimately, and that, and humility, by the way, is a very important virtue of acknowledged dependence. Yes. I mean, the kind of willfulness and rational mastery that's at the core of expressive individualism is antithetical to the, to the humility that one has from being formed properly in the humanities. Right. Um, but then in the substance of the work itself, I mean, what you're reading itself is basically about what it means to be human. Right. Um, you know, the motto, uh, the Latin motto of St. John's College is, I make free men from children using books in a balance. Yeah. And that's what, what liberal education is, is not 
education to free you to do whatever you want. It's to free, it's to give you the freedom to pursue the good as it exists, to understand what it is. Right. So studying the, the great works of Western civilization, especially through the lens of a wonderful Catholic university such as yours, whether you're a Catholic student or not, uh, this is this is what it means to learn what it is to be a human being, and also living in community, yes. uh, a special kind of community like the ones you all foster at, at Dallas, uh, where people take seriously their obligations to one another uh, and to the common good, um, and learn that they are not simply an individual seeking to work their will on the environment around them, but rather mm-hmm. collaborate together in a network of giving and receiving. Yeah, no, that's that's. Really outstanding. The the um, I sometimes think of our education as a kind of friendship for the sake of friendship, right? You and speaking analogically, we cultivate a friendship with with the truth through our encounter with the tradition. Um, but the friendship between students, the friendships between professors and students, and ultimately the friendship with God, right? And and it makes a difference to be at an institution that's Catholic, where we've got the divine liturgy celebrated several times a day on our campus. It's the beating heart of our campus and there's a humility before the the source of all truth that you just would miss if if you weren't able to engage in that kind of opportunity our our tradition you know law and and um uh builds on on case precedent it builds on tradition so too does framing an education that really humanizes right so we learn about what it is to be human and we become human through that through that engagement when we think about the the virtue of docility, I think we we sometimes um, focus on on the student as the recipient of something from a professor. But in in a, a university of Dallas setting, in a St. John setting, at a Trinity school, um, you the student and the professor are both, as it were, students of this long tradition. And the tradition has a a a, um, a governing force, but it's. It's not a tradition that's a sort of, of uninterrupted uh, sequence of progressive truths, right? It's, it's really one of, of conflict. Yes. And, and you know, we, we read Plato against Aristotle. We read Augustine against Plato. We read Aquinas against Augustine. We, and, and, and I'm just looking at one little vein here, right? So the, the kind of education that we provide is one that teaches students how to engage in conflict, how to engage in argumentation without quarreling. And and that seems to me truly a lost art in our culture today. I'll say so. I mean, I, uh, you, in our, just take our political climate. I mean, people cannot even – I mean, friendship is essential to all of this, it seems to me, like friendship in the richest sense, being capable and willing to make the good of another your own good. And friendship in education is essential. Friendship in politics is essential, but it's hard to, you don't see too many friendships among people who disagree with each other anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and as, as you say, I mean, there has to be a kind of shared, uh, commitment in the classroom led by the most advanced student, namely the professor. We call them tutors at St. John's. And, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and it's not, it's not a passive receiving of, of, you know, of, of a particular program or certainly not indoctrination that distinguishes Dallas, by the way, from many, many other, uh, you know, uh, universities where the process, the education is really just a kind of form of indoctrination. Right. Um, I'll tell you something funny when we were at St. John's and this is, I'm sure true here, probably even more so, um, 
you know, we, we read books basically out of any historical context, St. John. So you basically read, like, I don't know, I just know the order in which these books are written. I don't even, I couldn't tell you when many of these books are written. Yeah. I had to look on Wikipedia to find out what World War One was about. Yeah. You know, so, so I mean, it's, there's like a lot of missing, you know, historical context in the pure great books approach of St. John's. But to the point that you're talking about, the kind of maturing as a person, breaking yourself down and then maturing as a, as a thinker and a reader and a, and a person who's part of a community of learning where argumentation is part of that, but it's, it's done in a spirit of friendship uh, and charity. Um, <laughs> so we, you know, so end of sophomore year, we sort of pivot from Aquinas and Augustine and Anselm and before that Plato and Aristotle and Homer and so on. And then you hit Descartes. You're like, I'm not really sure what's happening here. And then, like, at the end, at the beginning of junior year, you hit, you know, after Descartes and the early moderns, you hit Kant. You're like, something in Rousseau, like, something terrible has happened. I yeah. can't say what it is exactly, <laughs> right. but it right. feels really bad. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, that's a kind of indication of, of, of the freedom that you obtain by being humble in the face of the books and engaging in good faith discourse yeah. uh, in this community of learning. Yeah. Um, I noticed that, that you have a, a book um, that's going to be coming out soon. Classics of Catholic Culture, and and you and Alistair McIntyre are, are both editors. It's an annotation on um, a collection of, of texts. I'm assuming. Could you could you tell us about that book yeah, and, it's, and, when, it's, and when to expect it's it? Still, well, it's going to be a little while. I mean, it, it's um, it's an I, after Dobbs was granted, cert was granted. I cleared the decks, and basically my whole job between now and the time it will be the case is announced in at the end of June in 2022 is to is to use all of my energies to try to educate the public and the scholarly community about and and my law st- students mm-hmm. in the in the more public more broadly speaking about that case and so i I've, I've sort of tabled a lot of my writing projects until that happens but this was alistair's idea alistair came up with this really interesting idea that there should be a canon of classics uh, written by catholic writers um, over time